We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 29 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Mercury Atlas 5 with Enos. In August of 1961, the Soviet Union orbited cosmonaut German Titov in Vostok 2 for a day-long flight. This produced stunned disbelief in the U.S. and paranoia in some quarters because Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev proclaimed in a speech afterwards, quote, We have launched Gagarin and Titov into space, and we can deliver a nuclear weapon to any point on the planet. Following the successful missions of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, NASA believed the Mercury capsule was ready for an orbital mission. But there was a problem. The Redstone booster did not have the power to place the Mercury capsule in orbit. The Atlas booster had the power to put the capsule in orbit, but not the confidence of NASA. By September of 1961, four launches of the Mercury Atlas had been made with only a 50% success rate. Additionally, the Atlas had not performed well in unmanned programs either, as three Atlas-able lunar probe launches in 1959-60 through 60 had all failed. The Air Force was experiencing problems with the military launches of a Midas early warning satellite and a SAMOS photo reconnaissance satellite both launched with Atlas Agenas and both failed to reach orbit during 1960. Atlas ICBM tests at the time were also routinely failing. This left NASA in a difficult position as the Atlas was the only launch vehicle available that could put Mercury into orbit, unless they wanted to wait two to three years for the Titan II ICBM to become operational. NASA finally decided to launch another unmanned Mercury Atlas mission. The NASA Public Affairs Office issued a press release stating, quote, The men in charge of Project Mercury have insisted on orbiting the chimpanzee as a necessary preliminary checkout of the entire Mercury program before risking a human astronaut, end quote. Just as Ham's flight preceded the successful suborbital missions of Shepard and Grissom, NASA decided to orbit a chimp prior to their first attempt at a manned orbital flight. But before we proceed with the flight, let's consider the history of the Atlas booster. Atlas was named for the Atlas from Greek mythology and the contractor's parent company, the Atlas Corporation. Atlas got its start in 1946 with the award of an Army Air Force research contract to Convair for the study of a 1,500 to 5,000 mile range missile that might at some future date carry a nuclear armed warhead. 
At the time, in the late 1940s, no missile conceived could carry even the smallest nuclear warheads. It was for this reason that the contract was canceled in 1947. But the Army Air Force allowed Convair to launch the three almost completed research vehicles using the remaining contract funds. The three flights were only partially successful. However, they did show that balloon tanks and gimbaled rocket engines were valid concepts. The Atlas was unusual in its use of balloon tanks for fuel. They were made of very thin stainless steel with minimal or no rigid support structures. Pressure in the tanks provided the structural rigidity required for flight. So an Atlas rocket would collapse under its own weight if not kept pressurized. The Atlas had to have 5 pounds per square inch of nitrogen in the tank even when not fueled. Atlas was constructed with uncoated steel necessitating the development by conveyor of the anti-corrosive spray WD-40. Atlas also had a unique and somewhat odd staging system. Most rockets stage by dropping both engines and fuel tanks simultaneously. However, when the Atlas missile was being developed, there were considerable doubts as to whether or not a rocket motor could be ignited in space. Therefore, the decision was made to ignite all of the Atlas engines at launch. Later, the booster engines would be discarded while the sustainer engine would continue to burn. The sustainer engine consisted of a single large thrust chamber and two small veneers, once again fed by a single common set of turbo pumps. The veneers provided roll control and final velocity trim. If that seems a little unclear, consider this. If you were to look at the bottom of an Atlas booster, you would see three engines in a row. The center engine is the sustainer, and the two outside engines are the first stage boosters. So the two outside engines were discarded during staging, and the center engine continued to burn until fuel was exhausted. Rockets using this technique are sometimes called stage-and-a-half boosters. This technique is made possible by the extremely light weight of the balloon tanks. The tanks make up such a small percentage of the total booster weight so that the weight penalty of lifting them to orbit is less than the technical and weight penalty required to throw half of them away mid-flight. Depending upon how you look at it, this makes an Atlas a single-stage-to-orbit booster, though most call it a 1.5-stage-to-orbit booster. By the mid-1950s, practical thermonuclear weapons had been demonstrated and design breakthroughs drastically reduced their weight. This, along with the CIA learning that the Soviet ICBM program was making progress, put the Atlas back in the spotlight, and Atlas was turned into a crash program of the highest national importance. The first Atlas flown was the Atlas A, in 1957 and 1958. It was a test model designed to verify the structure and the propulsion system and it had no sustainer engine or separable stages. 
This was followed by the Atlas B and C in 58 and 59. The B had full engines and booster engine staging capability. An Atlas B was used to orbit the SCORE satellite in December of 1958, which was the Atlas's first space launch. The C was a slightly more developed model using even thinner skin in the propellant tanks. Finally, the Atlas D, the first operational model and the basis for all Atlas space launchers, debuted in 1959. Atlas D weighed approximately 256,000 pounds and had an empty weight of only 11,894 pounds. The other 95% of the weight was propellant. This very low dry weight allowed Atlas D to send its nuclear warhead to ranges as great as 9,000 miles or to orbit payloads without an upper stage. The total thrust capability was 360,000 pounds. In 1960, the test with an Atlas D booster and a Mercury capsule began. Mercury Atlas 1 was launched on July 29, 1960. It suffered a structural failure and failed to put its capsule into orbit. Mercury Atlas II launched on February 21, 1961 and was a successful suborbital flight lasting 18 minutes. Mercury Atlas III launched on April 25, 1961 with a robotic mechanical astronaut. Unfortunately, the guidance system failed to execute pitch-and-roll commands, requiring the range safety officer to destroy the vehicle 43 seconds after launch. Mercury Atlas IV launched on September 13, 1961, with another robotic mechanical astronaut. It completed one orbit prior to returning to Earth. The capsule was recovered 176 miles east of Bermuda, one hour and 22 minutes after splashdown, the destroyer USS Decatur picked up the capsule. All flight objectives were successfully achieved on Mercury Atlas IV. The success of Mercury Atlas IV renewed NASA's confidence in the Atlas D's reliability, and they decided to go ahead with Mercury Atlas V. Mercury Atlas V would use Mercury spacecraft number 9 and Atlas number 93D. The Mercury capsule arrived at the Cape on February 24, 1961. It took 40 weeks of pre-flight preparation. This was the longest preparation time in the Mercury program. The reason for this was the mission of spacecraft number 9 kept changing. It had first been configured for a suborbital instrumented flight, then for a suborbital chimpanzee flight, then a three-orbit instrumented mission, and finally for the orbital flight with a chimpanzee. Mercury Atlas V was planned as a close approximation of the upcoming Mercury Atlas VI manned orbital mission. It would be launched from Complex 14 at Cape Canaveral on a heading 72.51 degrees east of north. Orbital insertion of the Mercury spacecraft would occur 480 miles from Cape Canaveral. The altitude would be 100 miles and the speed would be 25,695 feet per second. 
Retrofire was planned to take place at 4 hours 32 minutes and 26 seconds after launch. Spacecraft would land 21 minutes and 49 seconds after retrofire. Reentry temperatures were expected to reach 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the heat shield, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the antenna housing, 1,080 degrees Fahrenheit on the cylindrical section, and 1,260 degrees Fahrenheit on the conical section. The spent Atlas sustainer engine was expected to re-enter the atmosphere after nine and one-third orbits. And now some background information on the astronaut. Chimp number 18 was from Cameroon, Africa. He was purchased by the U.S. Air Force on April 3, 1960. He was given the name Enos, which means man in Hebrew. Enos completed more than 1,250 hours of training for his mission at the University of Kentucky and Holloman Air Force Base. His training was more intense than that of Ham because Enos would be exposed to weightlessness and a higher G-load for longer periods of time. His training included psychomotor training and aircraft flights. Captain Jerry Fine, chief veterinarian for the mission, described Enos as, quote, quite a cool guy and not the performing type at all, end quote. Eno's backup pilots listed in the order of their flight readiness availability were Dwayne, named for Dwayne Mitch, a veterinarian, Jim, named for Major James Cook, also a veterinarian, Rocky, named for the boxer Rocky Graziano, and Ham, the veteran astronaut. The psychomotor equipment used by Enos on the Mercury Atlas V mission was more complicated than that operated by Ham during his Mercury Redstone II suborbital flight. Housed in the cover of his pressurized couch, Enos's package was rigged to present a four-problem cycle. Problem 1 would offer right and left hand levers that Enos could use to turn off lights, avoiding a mild shock in the left foot. The second problem plan was a delayed response experiment. 20 seconds after a green light would appear on the panel, Enos would have to press a lever to receive a drink of water. Although there would be no penalty for his failure to respond, if the chimpanzee should pull the lever too early, the problem would simply recycle and he would receive nothing. The third, a fixed ratio problem, would involve pulling a lever exactly 50 times to receive a banana pellet. This would also be voluntary and without penalty. Chimpanzee intelligence would be tested in the fourth problem. Three symbols, circles, triangles, and squares, would appear in various two-of-a-kind combinations, with the task being to pull a lever under the odd symbol to avoid a mild shock. On October 29, 1961, three chimps and 12 medical specialists moved into quarters at the Cape to prepare for the flight. On November 29, about five hours before launch, Enos and his spacesuit couch were inserted in the spacecraft. During the countdown, various holds took two hours and 38 minutes but liftoff finally came at 15.08 Universal Time. 
The Atlas launched the Mercury spacecraft into an orbit of 99 by 147 miles. The turnaround and damping maneuver consumed 6 pounds of the 61.5 pounds of control fuel aboard. As the Mercury Atlas V capsule reached the Canton Island Station, Mercury Control realized that the attitude control system was malfunctioning. A metal chip in a fuel line had caused one of the clockwise roll thrusters to fail. The failed thruster allowed the spacecraft to drift from its normal attitude. This drift caused the automatic stabilization and control system to correct the spacecraft attitude. The spacecraft would swing back into a normal 34 degree orbital attitude and then the sequence would start again. The spacecraft repeated this drift and correction process nine times before retrofire. The entire process of drifting and realigning to 34 degrees caused one extra pound of fuel to be consumed each orbit. During the first orbit, Enos performed the psychomotor task admirably. At the end of the first orbit, ground controllers noticed that the capsule clock was 18 seconds too fast. As it passed over the Cape, a command was sent to update the clock to the correct time. The Mercury Control Center at Cape Canaveral received information that all spacecraft systems were in good condition at that time. At the beginning of the second orbit, as Mercury Atlas V passed over the Atlantic tracking ship, indications were received that inverter temperatures were rising. The environmental control system malfunction was also confirmed by the Canary Islands trackers. Abnormal heating had occurred on earlier flights in such cases. Inverters had continued working or had been switched to standby. The couch unit circuit temperature rapidly rose from 65 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. This was an indication that the heat exchanger was freezing. The rise in suit temperature caused Enos's body temperature to rise to 99 and then to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The medical observers began to worry about the chimp's condition. At 100.5, his body temperature stabilized. This indicated that the environmental system had started to function again. The cooling system seemed to correct itself, but the attitude problem continued. When the spacecraft reached Muchia, Australia, high thruster signals and capsule motion excursions were detected. Other data indicated that the 34-degree orbit mode was being maintained. When the capsule crossed the tracking station at Woomera, Australia, attitude control problems were not detected, so early reports were discounted. As Mercury Atlas V neared Hawaii on its second orbit, Medical monitors were willing to let Enos continue the flight for a third orbit. However, engineers were concerned about fuel consumption. They worried that after a third orbit, there would not be enough fuel for attitude control during re-entry. Flight Director Christopher Kraft alerted the Hawaii controllers to be ready to initiate retrofire to bring the spacecraft down in the Pacific if necessary. He also alerted controllers at point Argurello, California, to be ready to initiate retrofire as the capsule passed over their position. Kraft allowed the spacecraft to continue to its normal second orbit retro position near California. Then, 
12 seconds before the retro fire point was reached for the normal second orbit Atlantic primary recovery point, Kraft decided to bring Enos back to Earth. The chief flight controller at Point Argarello executed the command. There was one more attitude control excursion early in re-entry. After that, the rest of re-entry and recovery was uneventful. The destroyers USS Storms and USS Compton and the P-5M aircraft were waiting for the spacecraft at Station 8, their predicted landing point. Three hours and 13 minutes after launch and nine minutes before splashdown, the aircraft spotted the spacecraft at an altitude of 5,000 feet descending on its main parachute. The information was relayed to the Storms and the Compton who were 30 miles away. Spacecraft recovery aids were all functioning except for the beacon. During the descent, the aircraft continued to circle and report landing events. It remained in the area until the storms arrived an hour and 15 minutes after the landing. The spacecraft was recovered 255 miles southeast of Bermuda. The storms hauled Enos and his spacecraft aboard. On the deck of the storms, the hatch was blown explosively from outside the capsule by pulling a lanyard. Blowing the hatch caused the spacecraft pitcher window to crack. By this time, Enos had spent more than three hours waiting to be extracted. Apparently, he did not particularly enjoy his time on the water. When handlers removed him from the spacecraft, they found that he had torn through his medical sensor garments. He had also forcibly removed his urinary catheter while the internal anchoring balloon was still inflated. But on the whole, Enos fared pretty well. He withstood a peak of 6.8 Gs during booster engine acceleration and 7.6 Gs with the rush of the sustainer engine and experienced weightlessness 3 hours, 4 minutes, and 38 seconds. Here's the newsreel of the flight. It's a giant step as scientists and technicians prepare to orbit Enos, a five-year-old chimpanzee around the Earth. This is the preliminary, all-important step in space research that the U.S. insists on being successful before a man makes an orbital flight. Part of a highly trained team of chimps, Enos has been taught to perform certain tasks aboard the capsule when lights flash. His reward, a banana-flavored tidbit. The flight is delayed almost until the deadline. But now the countdown approaches zero and last off. History in the making. Flight is a success, though the trip is held to two circuits of the Earth. The chimp's cabin began to heat up, a condition an astronaut could have corrected. So control officers decided to bring him down before he completed his third trip. He landed in the sea south of Bermuda and is brought to the islands for quick medical checks before he is taken back to Cape Canaveral for a thorough examination. Scientists are elated at the condition of both chimp and capsule. They came through the test in a manner that brings a manned flight closer to reality for the U.S. space team. Air Force Base Hospital, Enos appears sound, if not happy, to examining doctors. He performed his task well, not missing a trick in the complex series of work assignments. Next in orbit, Lieutenant Colonel John H. Glenn. 
The performance of the Mercury spacecraft was considered partially successful. NASA believed that the problems with the thruster and the environmental control system could have been corrected with a human astronaut. The Atlas launch vehicle was completely successful and now qualified to carry a human into orbit. By 1965, with the second-generation Titan II having reached operational status, the Atlas became obsolete as a missile system and was gradually phased out in the mid-1960s. Many of the retired Atlas D, E, and F series missiles were used for space launches into the 1990s. Sadly, Enos died at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, one year, November 4, 1962, following his historic flight. He had been under observation day and night for two months prior to his death with a case of dysentery that was resistant to antibiotics. His illness and death were unrelated to his orbital flight. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.